It's history with a twist. You're listening to the Alternate History Show with Ben Kearns. Hello and welcome to another Alternate History Show. My name is Ben Kearns. I'm with you for the next hour and a half or thereabouts. It's the first Alternate History Show, evidently, of the year. Welcome along. Thank you for joining us. I do hope I can entice you to stay tuned for the next hour and a half as we talk about the Middle East. Over the past 100 years, we're going to tackle at least most things between now and the end of the programme. Starting in World War One with the Balfour Declaration, could it have been amended or prevented? What would the consequences have been? What about the British mandate of the 1920s and beyond? We'll be looking ahead to the formation of Israel in 1948. Could it have been hastened or indeed prevented? What about the Six-Day War of 1967 and the Yom Kippur conflict of 1973? Also got our analysis of Camp David. And what if Rabin had survived his assassination? That's all in the next hour and a half as I converse with Alex Wallace about the Middle East. Along with that, we will have the Feedback Hub, including the very latest news from the Alternate Timelines website, as it marks six years in existence. Plus, all you need to know about the L Sprague de Camp Awards, and I've written an article for Sea Lion Press. If you're intrigued to know what it's about, and more about what my relationship with alternate history has been, I will tell you later on. Plus details on how you can get in contact with us here at the Alternate History Show in the coming weeks and months. And as I was saying, we have a pretty gargantuan task uh, on this edition of the Alternate History Show. We're trying to make sense of uh, the Middle East and Israel and Palestine, the history of those two nations over the past uh, 100-odd years, at least from an alternate history perspective anyway, which makes it slightly more manageable. And helping me do that today is uh, regular on the programme, Alex Wallace. Hello. Hello, Ben. Pleasure to be here as always. We're recording on a uh, particularly interesting day in the history of Israeli-Palestinian relations, aren't we? Land Day. Tell us a little bit more about this. Among Palestinians on both sides of the Green Line, in both the occupied territories and in in the state of Israel proper, uh, due to an Israeli attempt at building settlements between... Arab villages in the Galilee, which it's designed to break up this block of Arab settlements and and, and make them dependent on the city of Carmiel. So there was a massive protest throughout the entire region because of this, and it was one of the first times that Palestinians in their homeland rose up against the Israelis rather than having the resistance be coordinated from uh, abroad like the PLO or the PFLP or Islamic Jihad or what have you. It was in many ways a predecessor to the Intifada of the 80s. So it's the beginning of that militancy 
in the region. Well, let's start as we normally do at the very beginning of where we intend to uh, start from. And uh, I want to start by talking about World War One. Oh, there you go. Lovely, uh, uncomplicated conflict to start off with. <laughs> and uh, what do you reckon about the Balfour Declaration? Let's start with that uh, uh, today. Um, I mean, would it have made much of a difference if the wording had been slightly more or less ambiguous? It promised a Jewish national home in Palestine. Yeah. And they had to square that with their promises to the Arabs. <laughs> and those two were mutually contradictory in any realistic sense. So you need to have a Balfour Declaration that isn't so explicit about that promise. Yeah. But given the, the, the two people that really were involved in its inception, that's hard to do. Really, the whole Balfour Declaration... The, the particular form it took was because of the very uh, unlikely relationship between uh, Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour and the Zionist leader Chaim Weizmann. Yes. Who was not only a friend of Balfour's and a leader of the Zionist movement, he was also a a chemist who was who worked in our, for the British artillery. And so he was very important to the British government in that regard. And so, in order to avoid the Balfour Declaration in the way we recognize it, you'd have to have either someone who isn't Balfour or Weizmann or both. One interesting point of departure for that would be 1905 time, because, um, as I understand it, Weizmann and uh, Balfour actually met just after he stepped down as Prime Minister, actually, in 1905, and while he was uh, op opposition leader. Another interesting idea I have is, uh, yeah, what if Balfour wasn't Foreign Secretary, but Weizmann still was in place? So Edward Gray carried on as uh, Foreign Secretary, what would that be like? Would we have a, a Gray Declaration instead? So I'm not terribly familiar with the particular positions of Edward Gray, but you lack the, the relationship between Balfour and Weizmann that really shaped the Balfour Declaration as we recognize it. Yeah. So it's hard to say. Hmm. It is tricky, but uh, yeah, what's uh, what's interesting is he was uh, quite an, quite an interesting advocate for uh, Palestinian affairs. He'd worked uh, quite closely with uh, Herbert Samuel as well. Uh, on the other hand, who was uh, behind the Samuel Memorandum of 1915, which was uh, viewed as a bit of a pre precursor as well to uh, Balfour Declaration. Going to move on to the end of the First World War, of course, and the establishment, or just before the establishment of the uh, British. Mandate. I want to talk about the Ottoman Empire because, of course, that uh, left a bit of a vacuum in the Middle East. Uh, is there any way, without changing the overall result of the First World War, to leave the Ottomans in better shape to sort of control uh, what's going on in the Middle East, at least to a degree? They come out on the losing side, but still maintain a degree of influence. You need to ha have an Ottoman military victory in that case, but not one that totally uh, wins the war for them. I yeah. would say, like have the Ottomans keep the British at bay in southern Palestine, mm. restrict the British operations to, like, the, the, the Sinai. Yeah. And maybe even have a negotiated settlement. There were discussions in the lead-up to the war and even during the early part of the war on who to side with. So, he, I mean, David Ben-Gurion offered to, to raise a Jewish legion for the Ottomans. So if things go a bit differently and you have the... the the Zionists on the Turkish side, maybe that would lead to a 
different settlement because then they'd be able to uh, draw on the uh, resources of the Jewish diaspora mm. from which uh, the Zionist movement in our world got so much support and so much money, which was very important. Mm. Maybe they could use that to, to fund the Ottoman military if they, they view that as being in their interests. On the other hand, of course, they would have the uh, Allied powers who had won the war against them. If the Zionists are the Ottoman Vindans, there's no guarantee that you have uh, British Jews uh, sending money to them in the way that they did to the into the Zionist movement in the Mandate. Mm. So there's there's no guarantee. Uh, yeah, I mean, if anything, some of the more politically influenced ones would find it politically unfeasible to do so as well, perhaps. Yeah. Let's move on to the British Mandate period, uh, which was uh, rocky, shall we say? Is there any is there any way it could have been less so, perhaps, from 1920 onwards, uh, more harmonious between the uh, Jews living there and the Arabs living there, um, or, or is there any is there any any way it could have been more so, perhaps, more rocky? I mean, it was almost a miracle that, that the that the region didn't blow up in the way that, that Yugoslavia did in our 1990s. Yes, yes. You had a, you had Zionists who were building their new towns, buying up uh, the lands owned by absentee Arab landlords, kicking off the Felahin who worked there, and then building building uh, kibbutzim there. Hmm. And on the other hand, you had an Arab population that was not at all happy that there was so many uh, more Jews coming into the country. There were Arab Christians who called the newcomer Jews Christ killers. And there were, nice. throughout the, the, the mandate period, there were many riots yeah. uh, by Arabs against Jews. It's this deeply divided uh, sectarian society. I read one book on the mandate, and they're and the, talking about how the British were afraid it was going to become like Ireland. Yeah. Remember, the, the Irish War of Independence was only yeah. a couple of years before. There's no easy answer. Because the British had to balance between the Zionists and the, the Arabs. There's no way that they they could make one happy and make the other happy to the same Degree. same magnitude simultaneously. Mm. As Serene McDesey said in his book, Palestine Inside Out, which is a very good book, Yeah. the, the, the conflict between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians is about land. Mm. And who has the right to this land. Yeah, and they both view themselves as having a right to, to what is then the Mandate of Palestine, and so you're going to have to get them to get, be willing to give up at least some of their claims, and I don't see an easy way to do that. It's an interesting point you raised a minute ago about the uh, idea that the early 1930s could have been like the uh, Balkans in the 90s for uh, Palestine for that area. There were actually riots in reality in 1929, August 1929, just before the Great Depression hit, evidently. An interesting time for it. What if they had uh, exploded as you, as you say, in the early 1930s? What would the consequences be then? A significant reduction in the population of Palestine, Jewish and Arab. You would probably see many Jews retreating to some of their more fortified cities. Tel Aviv is the big one. And you might see a siege of Tel Aviv. And I'll say this for many Arab wars with Israel. I doubt you would see anything so organized as the Holocaust. No. But you would most... I can see there being retaliations on the level of individual Arab formations against Jewish civilian populations. Like in our world, you had the, the, the Nebi Musa riots in the Mandate. Yeah. You had the Kafar et Zion massacre in... 
during the 48 War, also the Mount Scopus massacre in our world. But that being said, uh, the Zionists in this period were better funded and would be much more capable of importing arms from other countries. And so you would have a very large, yet poorly trained and poorly armed Arab population versus a much smaller, but much better armed and much better trained, yet yet poorly trained and poorly armed Arab population versus a much smaller, but much better armed and much better trained Jewish population. Because at that time, uh, there already was uh, Hashomer, the early Zionist militia, and that would become the Haganah at a certain point, which would become the core of the IDF in the 48 war. Yeah. And so you already had the, this... Uh, the Zionist uh, military force that could be able to inflict more on the Arabs proportionally uh, than the, uh, their populations would suggest. So I don't know how it ends, but it does not end prettily. There's the potential for genocide there, do you reckon, then? I would say that there, that depending on how things go, you could see a genocide going either off either Jew on Arab or Arab on Jew. I'm going to use a framework created by a professor named Ben Kiernan, not my co-host, uh, who is the director of the Genocide Studies Dep Department at Yale, wrote a very good book called A Blood and Soil, A World History of Genocide and Extermination from Sparta to Darfur. And he talks about his model of genocide and that there are four requirements, which need three to have a genocide. Mm. They are a cult of antiquity, a cult of agrarianism, racism, and expansionism. I dare say that in different ways, both sides had their versions of all four. Because on the one hand, on the Zionist side, uh, you had the cult of antiquity, obviously, because it's, 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 the, it's their holy land. Mm. It's, and it's Israel. Yeah. For the cult of agrarianism, you have the, the, the kibbutz movement that if it goes in the wrong way and it becomes militarized even more, because it was already a romanticized thing among the Zionist movement, that, that Jews were supposed to work with their hands. And uh, and some of them say that to reject the, the, the reject what they had been in, in the ghettos. And so you had, in many cases, the influential Zionists arguing against hiring Arab workers, saying no, they should be they should be hiring Jews. And so that's how you might get a cult of agrarianism on the Zionist side. Racism, these were Jews, but, the, but their leaders were European Jews, and so many of them had the prejudices of Europe at the time, and they saw the Arabs as uncivilized, and in many cases, not having the sophistication that the Jews would. So there was this whole thing among the Zionists that they're going to make a desert bloom because in their mind, the Arabs had neglected it. So you have racism. Expansionism, pretty obvious. You have the Zionists wanting to settle in more parts of the historical land of Israel to create, as Weizmann said, Palestine that is as Jewish as England is English. On the Arab side... You have the cult of antiquity because you have the, the, the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem, or as they'd say, Al-Quds. You have other Muslim holy sites in the region. Cult of agrarianism. Uh, I, I, what I've read in Baruch Kemmerling and John Migdal's History of the Palestinian People, 
as Palestine urbanized from the beginning of the 20th century well into the 20s and 30s, as and the Arabs were moving to Haifa or to Jaffa or Jerusalem or where have you, uh, there became this romanticization of uh, Palestinian village life, which was their traditional way of living. And they see this as the ideal way of Palestinian living as opposed to the big cities. Mm. I mean, as Kiernan says, the, the, the cult of agrarianism happens when the urban elites think rural living is better than urban living. Mm. For racism, as I said, you had the Christ-killer thing from Arab Christians. You already had a deal of anti-Semitism among the Arabs at the period. Uh, you had the riots, obviously, during the World War II, uh, men, a, a number of Arab leaders would would sell fields with, with the Nazis, and during the forty eight war, several former Nazis fought all, along the side with, with the Arabs. Yeah, and so depending on how things go, you could easily see a sort of genocidal racism develop among among the Arabs, and expansionism would be. A sort of more of a revanchism than a expansionism per se, yeah. in that they'd want to uh, take back the, the land on which uh, Jewish settlements were built. During, of course, the Balkans, the Balkans War, the uh, early 90s, it was a time of uh, relative prosperity, at least, um, and the economy was doing quite well. Uh, interestingly, in the 30s, uh, in the West, there was a depression, so that would make um, governments there very, very unwilling to intervene. I wonder what difference that would make. In terms of the British government, I mean, they might, they might not. Uh, there's certainly a prestige element at play in, in London because they'd wa they want to be the custodians of the Holy Land. On the other hand, uh, take a look at the United States at the period. Uh, we, Washington withdrew American troops from Nicaragua for, for cost reasons during yes. the Depression. Yeah. And so you might see similar with the British in Palestine and just if the if both sides attack the British rather than each other to a certain point, you may well see a British government just throw up their hands and leave, much as they did in our world in forty eight. Mm. And just let them kill each other. Like they don't see any value in it. It would be an interesting to see how an early appeasement uh, brought about by this uh, would have would have affected things as well. That would have been interesting. I, right. If we're talking about appeasement and Nazi Germany more generally, yeah, uh, there was a small movement among the Zionists in the period to talk with with Hitler and see if they can get some of the Jews in the within Germany to Palestine. Yeah. Basically thinking that if he doesn't want them, we'll take them. Yeah. And so uh, there were a few thousand who actually got to Palestine in, in an agreement bet mm. between uh, a few uh, Zionists like Arthur Ruppen and Chaim Arlosorov that had some Jews in Germany ending up in Palestine during the 1930s. It's called the Haavara Agreement. Yeah. And so this was very controversial among the Yishuv, and Chaim Arlosorov was in all likelihood shot because of it. No one's really sure who killed him, but that's one of the common theories that so someone was mad at him for daring to deal with the Nazis. Mm. But if you can somehow get them more influential you could get at least a couple thousand more, which saves more from the Holocaust, but also 
changes the balance of power even more in in the mandate, which makes it off a civil war. Oh, fun! There I mean, go. Palestine in this period is like Lebanon after yeah. its independence in '44. Yeah, where the whole thing is just balancing communities, which could blow up at any time. Let's move on to the 1940s. Without any Second World War, at least in the way that we know it, is Israel formed or not, do you reckon, Alex? It could be formed if the uh, Zionist militias like the Haganah and the Etzel and the Lehi, because I think all of those existed before the World War II, but... In this world, you don't have the mass of Western sympathy that came from the Holocaust. Mm. And so in this situation, you might get a more revisionist Jabotinsky-esque state that, that trusts the outside world even less than it does today. So if the Zionists make the British staying in the region hard enough and they withdraw in Germany, you might even get an Israeli North Korea. Oh. That's a fault, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's not a pleasant one. But there are very few pleasant thoughts in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I should ask the uh, diametrically opposing question now. Uh, is there any way in which Israel could not have been formed uh, if World War II ended the way it did? I've watched a couple of movies set during the 48 War, mm. and one of the, the moments that they like to bring up a lot is... Your, your, your valiant group of Jews who've just fled the Holocaust listening on the radio in, in anticipation to the roll call UN vote and there's a great celebration once it's announced that the, the motion passes and that the Jews will have a state in Palestine have that vote fail you might get a unitary state with two different uh, nationalities but you also might get another civil war so <laughs> Who knows? In the 1940s. Yeah, brilliant. A lot of what-ifs in this period just end up in, oh, there's going to be a civil war, and it's yeah. not fun. So you say if that if that had failed, then there would be some sort of war, there would be some sort of conflict at that point, and it would be nastier, even nastier than the uh, Israeli-Arab War of 1948. Possibly. I mean, the 48 war was already pretty nasty. In a world where the UN vote fails, it might look like the Balkans or Rwanda. They said it's almost a miracle it didn't get turned out like that in, in our world. You've been listening to part one of the Alternate History Show with me, Ben Kearns, and Alex Wallace. And we'll continue our discussion on Middle East matters in the next half hour. In particular, we'll be looking at the establishment of Israel in earnest. Plus, a lack of involvement by the Israelis in the Suez Crisis. Also, the Six-Day War and Yom Kippur conflict. All that to come in the next 30 minutes. This is the Alternate History Show. We revisit the past, change it, and see what happens. Enough said. Well, let's focus on 1948 then and the uh, formation of Israel. Um, is there anyone besides Ben-Gurion who could have uh, sort of stepped up to the plate and led uh, the first Israeli government or the first Israeli formation, so to speak? I mean, you have a more dovish faction under Masha Sharet, 
who would become the second prime minister and who Patrick Tyler argues was outmaneuvered by Ben-Gurion and his ilk. Yes. And so you might get a earlier peace agreement if, if Charette can, can, or in the more peaceable Zionists can get in charge. Uh, you did have Menachem Begin, yeah. who was an acolyte of Yabotinsky, who Ben-Gurion thought was a humongous threat to the, the state of Israel. Mm. Uh, have you read about the Altalena incident during the 48 war? Oh, um, yeah, very vaguely. I, I sort of know a little bit about it. The, the Altalena was a ship carrying munitions that landed, I want to say in Tel Aviv, somewhere on the coast, with weapons for the for the Etzel or the Ergun, the two different names for uh, the organization which Begin was affiliated with. Mm. And so seeing this, Ben-Gurion or the Haganah, his his militia, the largest of the Zionist militias in the, in the region in, during the period, and would later become the core of the IDF to seize the Altalena and take the weapons for themselves. Mm. Like, you... If that goes differently, you might have a civil war between the different Zionist or organizations while the war where the Arabs is still going on. Oh, wow. And that may yeah. spell the, 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 the doom for Israel in the in the womb. Uh, I mean, and then, of course, this brings us to the question, what happens if the Arabs win and how could the Arabs win? Yeah. So what I think is the most likely way of doing it, is having the Arabs succeed in breaking the Jerusalem road. A lot of the dynamics of the 48 war is the Arabs sending in troops from their countries and material from their countries, mm. while the Zionists were having to ship in weapons and volunteers from Europe and the United States. Yeah. And so they would land at Tel Aviv and they would be brought up the Jerusalem road to Jerusalem, and they would defend the city there. Mm. If you, if the Arabs succeed in breaking that road and isolating Jerusalem from the Zionists, they've got a good shot at winning. If they can take Tel Aviv Jaffa, they have a very good chance of winning. Yeah, but the Zionists had the better had better trained men. They yeah. had the better better equipment. So it's kind of a fluke. Mm. So if you if you if the Arabs capture Tel Aviv, they've won. Yeah. And what does that look like? Um, what are, what are the consequences? Do you reckon of an Arab victory in that way? In all his in all his discussions, they like to talk about a second Holocaust. Yeah. I don't think it would have looked quite like a second Holocaust. I've seen and argued by Rashid Khalidi that the. Arabs didn't initially didn't want to invade the, 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 the Jewish parts of Palestine. What they wanted was to secure the Arab regions as promised by the partition plan. That's what Rashid Khalidi argues. So maybe they could break the Jerusalem road and not go on to Tel Aviv, but at the very least they'd have to secure the road very well, have a have a good contingent of troops on the border of the of, of the line drawn by the UN. Mm. And so I don't think you'd have Nazi-style death camps. I do think that 
Arab fury against the Zionists could go to some very ugly places, and a lot of it w- would be inspired by the commanders on the ground rather than by the, the, the high commands in any of the Arab capitals. And so you would have Zionists who are afraid of getting another Holocaust, and then you'd have another another uh, possibility of civil war like what there was in the Mandate period. Mm. Which is never a happy thought. Never a happy I mean, thought. It's 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 a happy thought that we avoided it then, basically. Yes. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, but in that case, you just have it telling to the Jews in Palestine this world what happened to the Arabs in Palestine in our world mm. you know, what they is called Al-Nakba the catastrophe the I mean historians agree on how much of this was a centrally planned thing by Ben Gurion and his ilk yes and versus how much of this was all, all of local local Haganah commanders yeah but a lot of them were a lot of Arabs were sent fleeing to other Arab states. And so there were a lot of atrocities in this period by the Haganah and the Ergun and the Lehi and the Palmach against various Arab villages. There were a couple of, of towns spared because they knew that the rest of the world would be angry if certain towns were had this done to them. And so that's why Nazareth is the is today the Arab capital of Israel. Yes, it's because they knew that if, if if they do anything to Nazareth, the West takes away all its aid. Yeah. Or Bethlehem. Well, let's focus a little bit more on the formation of Israel and geopolitics, I suppose. It's a geopolitical state in the world. As you were saying earlier on, it was a surprise to a lot of people that they didn't become pro-Soviet. What would the consequences be of a pro-Soviet Israel? And then we'll touch on the uh, idea of a more mute- neutral uh, Israel. But uh, first off, let's touch on the, uh, say, pro-Soviet Israeli uh, policy. What would that be like? And uh, what would the consequences of that be? I mean, I can see, like, a pro-Soviet Israeli government performing sort of a Havara agreement with the Soviet Union or with Poland in regards to the Jews in these countries, in which... I mean, take Soviet and Semitism in the doctor's plot in the 50s. Maybe the Soviet government would be willing to, to let some of them go to Israel instead of being thrown in a gulag. Yeah. And, like, you had the, the deportation of Jews in Poland in the 60s under Vladislav Gamilka, who might be willing to have an agreement with Israel in the, in the period. Mm. If you have a pro-Soviet Israel, expect a lot of American and British aid going to the Palestinians. Of course. Uh, In refugee camps, you might have a better defended uh, Gaza Strip and West Bank with American aid in that case. And you might avert anything resembling the Six-Day War because the Jordanians, the Egyptians, and Syrians versus the Israelis are much more evenly matched here. Mm. And before we move on with the 48, past the 48 war, one little point of divergence I want to want to bring up Shocking. in that during the peace talks, this guy named Husni al-Zaim comes yes. to power in Syria. Yeah. And he proposes a peace deal with the Israelis mm. where there'd be some border redrawing. 
there'd be mutual recognition between Jerusalem and Damascus. And another interesting thing, that he would take a great many of the of the Palestinian Arabs and settle them in a part of Syria where he needed labor. Mm. So that is an interesting idea to see if that succeeds. Mm. And you have an Israel that has good relations with Syria going into the 1950s and how that affects the whole conflict. That might be a way of getting a neutral Israel if its relations with the Arabs are better. Who would be prominent in a pro-Soviet Israel, do you reckon? Which which uh, Israeli politicians do you reckon would be uh, prominent in a pro-Soviet or at least a Soviet-leaning Israel? I mean, I think a lot of the same ones would be in power because Ben Gurion was in the was part of the more socialist-leaning uh, uh, Zionist faction, the Labour Zionists. Mm. And so, I mean, I, the impression I get from Ben Gurion and through a lot of his acolytes is that they were ruthless pragmatists, and that they allied with the United States because they thought it would be it was the geopolitical sound way to ensure the survival of Israel. Mm. If that looks differently, and if the Soviets look like a better option, I think he would take it. If you have Ben Gurion in power pro-Soviet Israel, you you still get the very hard line against the Arab states. Yeah. Because his whole philosophy was was very skeptical of the Arabs, mm. and so he that's why he he marginalized Moshe Sharet and his faction, and so you could see an Israel whose domestic policies are quite similar to OTL, just well, just uh, with better relations with Moscow rather than Washington. Yeah. But in that case, you have the the West aiding the Palestinians much more than they did in our world. What about the idea of an, a, a completely neutral, or as neutral as possible, Israel uh, in this period and in the years succeeding it? Uh, do you need a different? Uh, do you need a different uh, Soviet, or uh, do you need a different Soviet crew for that to happen? Uh, do you need a, perhaps uh, the absence of the doctor's case or anything like that? I mean, it's hard to get a neutral Israel because it's hard to get a neutral anyone in the early Cold War. Yeah. Because at that point, I mean, the Egyptians were dealing with this too, that they were beginning to see that there was a very strong beat line being drawn between the Western Bloc and the Eastern Bloc. Mm. And so that eventually they were going to have to choose a side. Yeah. Is that the, the Egyptians were, were doing a lot of this and the Israelis did the same. And so they ended up in the Western Bloc in our world. Uh, they might not in another world. Mm. And so you might need a different end of World War II in Europe to, to get this about. Uh-huh. Maybe get that neutral Germany that Stalin wanted. Yeah. Uh, have the Soviet Union take all of Germany and the low countries and even parts of France if the if the Western effort goes more more poorly. Could that also force Israel's hand to join a particular side of the of the Cold War, assuming it starts and goes on as it would otherwise do, because of the apathy towards what the former German government did uh, regarding the Holocaust, so to speak? There was actually a whole debate in Israel about how, what relations with Germany did they want? Mm. Because of the Holocaust, and there was a normalization faction, and there was a we must never speak to the Germans ever again faction, yeah, yeah. and various shades between them. Mm. And eventually, 
relations between Israel and West Germany became normalized. I think at some point they're going to have to normalize relations with the Germans yeah. if they want to be a normal quote-unquote state yeah. like Moshe Charette wanted. Because Moshe Charette very much believed that Israel had international responsibilities and to be a responsible member of the of inter the international community. And so I think they're going to come to an agreement with Germany at some point. Mm. If you have that revisionist Zionist Jabotinskyist state, that could probably be delayed by a few decades, but I think eventually they're going to have to. We're going to shift on now to the 50s. I want to talk a little bit, actually, before we do that, about whether a more Western-inclined Israel could have been could have been achieved from the get-go. So more enthusiastically Western, if that makes sense. I mean, I don't know how you could get any more than already did because Israel had so many friends in London and in Washington. And part of this was sympathy from the Holocaust. Part of this was actively lobbying by the Zionist movement. Yeah. Because you had Chaim Weizmann acting as their chief lobbyist. Yes. Because he was in London a lot, and later he went to New York mm. to uh, to get financial support from American Jews. And so I think that sort of financial support is easier to get in the West than in the in the Eastern Bloc because there are more rich Jews in, in Britain and in the United States who can aid Israel in that way. Yeah. And so that is a pull factor towards the West mm. in, in Jerusalem. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Well, we're going to move on to the 50s now. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Suez Crisis, of course, which Israel was heavily involved in. Um, could we avoid that at all? At all? Is, is that just going to happen at some point with the situation as it was in the mid-1950s? And what will the consequences of no Suez Crisis be for Israel in particular? In order to not have... Uh and Israel involved in the Suez crisis. You need a Israel that doesn't doesn't intensely dislike the Egyptians because of the 48 war. Yeah. That is hard. <laughs> so I mean given that the Israel that the predecessors to the Israeli special forces were were uh, developed during World War Two, and it's and seems going back to even World War One. You have an Israeli state that is willing to do such things, and you, I mean, look at the whole uh, the whole Lavon affair, mm. where a uh, a, a uh, Mossad operation in Egypt went very poorly. I mean, if if the Lavon affair goes off without a hitch, you you have an even more anti-Egyptian West and maybe an earlier uh, coalition against the Egyptians with Israel involved. Uh, but that, in our world, that was exposed and that destroyed Israeli credibility among some. And partially, you want to avoid Gamal Abdel Nasser from coming to power. Yes. Because he was big in the whole anti-imperialism and the pan-Arabism. I mean, one of the reasons that the French and the Israelis were so close in the 50s and 60s is because they both rapidly hated Gamal Abdel Nasser. Yeah. It's because Nasser 
on the one hand, supported the Palestinians against Israel, and on the other hand, he supported the Algerians against the French in their war. Yeah. And so the Paris and Jerusalem saw that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so there was a lot of cooperation between France and Israel in the period, which led to the Israeli nuclear program being originally made with majority French support. Yeah. Before the U.S. took over the uh, supporting role uh, later yes. on. Yeah. What about the uh, in the sixties? How about the uh, six day the six day war? Um, how uh, how could that have been avoided, or how could it have been a longer war than six days? What would have happened? I've read one book that argued it'd be rather hard to get a to avoid a war in that period because at that point. There were people not just in Jerusalem, but also Damascus and Cairo who were itching for war. You have to have the Egyptians avoid blockading the Straits of Tehran. Yeah. Because the, the Israelis warned the Egyptians and the Syrians repeatedly, if you blockade the Strait of Tehran, we are going to war. Mm. And the Egyptians did it anyway. It is true to say that the Israelis fired the first shot, but like, I mean, after the Egyptians did something that the Israelis said was going to be a war, they kind of had it coming. Yeah. Because you need to have someone in charge of Egypt and Syria who isn't willing to go to war in that period. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might want to avoid the free officers coup in in Egypt. Where you'd have a more pro-British and thereby pro-Western government in Egypt, which doesn't necessarily like Israel, but could be persuaded to avoid doing anything rash mm. by London and Washington. Think in, in the present day, Washington's relationship with Israel on one hand and Saudi Arabia on the other, they would hate each other, mm. but they see a common interest in not starting a war. What about the idea of a longer, uh, a war that goes on for longer than six days? Um, I mean, was that at all possible at that point? What would the consequences of that be, do you reckon? I mean, it's hard because at this point the Israelis have a much more backing from the West, whereas the Arabs don't have as good of a, of a military during the period. Hmm. And so maybe Jerusalem allows David Lass in, in the north to go even farther into Syria than he did before. Because yeah. it was Al-Aqsa who the Golden Heights. And so maybe would have Israeli force moving on Damascus I don't think they want to do that because that's a whole bloody siege right there. I'm not yes, sure the IDF yeah. can supply lines that long from Israel. And the international blowback would definitely be strong. Mm. The Israelis go further into Syria or, for that matter, into Egypt. If they cross the Suez Canal and try to attack Cairo, you're also looking at a probably overextended IDF that eventually surrenders not out of any defeat, but out of exhaustion. Mm. Okay. Uh, moving on then to, well, from one to a war to another, really, the Yom Kippur War of 1973. 
um, can that be avoided as well? I mean, can, say, those uh, who were fighting Israel be prevented from doing so, Syria and the like, and uh, can, it, can, can things be sort of dampened down by the powers that be before things get uh, to a head in the way that they did? Or could things... Uh, I guess if things get any worse, then, uh, yeah, it could go nuclear. Mate... With the Yom Kippur War, it wasn't quite the same as the Six Day War because one, the Jordanians aren't involved. Mm. Two, uh, it's because the the Egyptians and the Syrians attacked because the Soviets warned them that the Israelis were mobilizing when they weren't, and partially the goal was wasn't to to break Israel entirely, just to humiliate them and to improve the regime's popularity in their own countries. So it wasn't to destroy Israel, it was to give them a bloody nose. Mm. And you could argue the Arabs succeeded in doing that. Yeah. If they get farther, Mayer authorizes the, the use of the, of, of the Israeli nuclear bomb. And Lord knows what happened after that. Nothing yeah. good. Yeah, no. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, before we, we move on, yeah. uh, one other 6 day war point of urgence that I think would be interesting. Yeah. In our world... The Jordanians entered with the Syrians and the Egyptians after some prodding because the Palestinians in the West Bank wanted them to. Yes. In our world, that blew up in those Palestinians' face spectacularly because it led to the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, mm. which continues to this day. Yeah. If, you, if the Jordanians avoid giving in to the Palestinians during this period, you could easily have the... West Bank remain in Jordanian hands going into the 70s and 80s, albeit probably with a Palestinian insurgency even worse than there was in reality, because there were militants in Jordan attacking Jordanian assets because they wanted the, the Jordanians to do, do more against Israel. This culminated in what they call Black Tuesday, I think, where the Jordanians just expel the militants from the refugee camps and they, they leave, they go through Syria, and they wind up in Lebanon, mm. which is led to the destabilization that led to the 80s war in Lebanon. So if the Jordanians keep the West Bank, that has butterflies that I can't immediately predict, but I think is interesting. You mentioned this at the beginning, really, Land Day. Tell us about Land Day and um, what the consequences would be of that not occurring or occurring differently. I mean, this is when alternate history about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict gets kind of hard because sure. I would argue since the beginning of the Zionist movement that some flare-up like this is inevitable. Yeah, It just happened because the Israelis were Judaizing the, the, the Galilee. They wanted the Galilee to have a Jewish majority. Because I think even to this day it has an Arab majority. And so they were building a town called Carmiel, and they were trying to break up a block of Arab towns by putting Jewish settlements in between them. And so that leads to massive protests on both sides of the Green Line. Mm. And so I, I doubt it could ever overthrow the Israeli government, but if they, they play their cards right, they might get rest some concessions from, from the Israeli government. Mm. Uh, and keep in mind that up until sometime in the 60s, the Arab population within the, the, the border of the state of Israel was 
under military rule. Yes. And and the the Shin Bet, the Israeli FBI, had a lot of jurisdiction with them. And so there was only de jure removed in the late 60s. But if Lande and its and its consequences get bad enough, that might be reinstated and the gains that the Arab population in Israel got in our world may be rolled back a couple of decades. Mm. And so I mean, I think that there's going at some point there's gonna going to be a flare up at some point. Something like in what is it in our world, the Intifada in the eighties. I mean, with Israeli policy towards the Arabs, it is inevitable. Yeah. The whole conflict between the the, the Zionist goal and the Arab reality on the ground, there's going to be something. Yeah. It's just a matter of what and when. And that's what makes all the history about this sort of thing kind of hard, mm. because it feels inevitable. You've been listening to part one of the Alternate History Show with me, Ben Kearns, and Alex Wallace. And we'll continue our discussion on Middle East matters in the next half hour. In particular, we'll be looking at the establishment of Israel in earnest, plus a lack of involvement by the Israelis in the Suez Crisis... Also, the Six-Day War and Yom Kippur conflict. All that to come in the next 30 minutes. The Alternate History Show with Ben Kearns in association with AlternateHistory.com, the world's premier alternate history discussion site. Moving on to 1970s, the late 1970s then, and I was wondering, of course, uh, quite a popular what-if, really, is the idea of uh, the Camp David Accords going differently. Um, I mean, what if they hadn't happened? What would uh, Israeli-Egyptian relations in particular be like? How would they unfold uh, had that not occurred? If the Egyptians remain anti-Israeli, uh, I would expect at some point another Arab coalition against the Israelis, mm. maybe as a result of flare-ups in Lebanon. Yeah. You might have Syria and Egypt and maybe Jordan. Well, at this way, probably not, because the, the, the Palestinian leaders are now in Lebanon. Intervening in Lebanon's favor, and while Israel is in the whole Lebanese mess, Egyptians and Syrians trying to liberate at least the Gaza Strip, they would, that their access to the West Bank is harder. But you might see more... Syrian support for the Lebanese and in this world you probably see a stronger Arab nationalist movement in the Arab world going on for longer because in our world it was discredited in part because Sadat made peace yeah. with the Israelis mm. and that's why some Egyptian troops gunned him down in a parade mm. because they thought he was weak and these troops were of an Islamist bent mm. rather than an Arab nationalist bent. And so if you avoid that and you have Sadat remain against the Israelis, you stave that off for a while. And also, if you have a larger coalition against the Israelis when they're involved in Lebanon, you might see more Iranian support. Mm because the Iranians were backing what would become Hezbollah yeah. in 
in the, in the 80s war. Mm. And so you had the Israelis backing the Maronites, the Syria backing the Sunni, the Iranians backing the Shia. And as I said, I mean, Lebanon was a powder keg ever since 44. Yes. Probably even earlier than that when the French came in. And so, Mm. I mean, the whole thing, Lebanon is just an inglorious mess. As David Hurst put it in his (laughs) book on the conflict, Beware of Small States, he called it a land of Hobbesian chaos, which is brilliant a very vivid way of putting it yeah and so you have to the point the, i would say perhaps yes yes and, and so if you want to avoid lebanon i have either the the, the palestinian militants in jordan not piss off the jordanian uh government to the to, to that extent and so let them stay in jordan or have them go somewhere else in the Arab world or even beyond it. Mm. Maybe if you can delay something like Black Tuesday for a decade and the Palestinian militants keep relatively quiet, Mm. you could see them going to revolutionary Iran. And because the revolution, because the new Iranian government rabidly hated the Israelis, still does. Yes, yes. And so you could avoid the whole Lebanon war by having them be based in Iran. Mm. That being said, Iran does not have the the benefit that Lebanon does because in Lebanon they can launch rockets into Israel, and because of rocket attacks into Israel, the Israelis invaded Lebanon. It's honestly surprising, like like Palestine in the Mandate period, that Lebanon didn't blow up sooner than it did. Yes. Because there was a flare-up in the 50s that Eisenhower deployed the U.S. Marines there, Mm. and then they withdrew. And so, Lebanon was Israel's Vietnam, for lack of a better comparison. Yeah, I can see where you're going. Maybe there's a way to get the Israelis and the war in a better way, to avoid Sabra and Shatila, and have them keep a better leash on the Maronite militias with which they were allied. Mm-hmm prevent the notoriety that those massacres brought about and maybe end up with a partition of Lebanon with a pro-Israeli Maronite state based on Mount Lebanon, which has been an idea among certain Zionists since the Mandate period. And so if they succeed in that, that they can navigate the civil war better, the Israelis might be in a more secure position afterward if they get that Maronite allied state. Let's go into the 80s now. We're venturing into the 80s and we're sort of sticking with a similar premise, really. Similar-ish, at least. Uh, We touched on uh, Sadat's assassination um, a little while ago. Uh, what if he hadn't been assassinated? What if the assassination hadn't worked? How would that have worked out? You have a big Islamist movement even within the Egyptian army during the period. Yeah. And so that's what allowed Sadat to be shot because there were people against him in the Egyptian army. At that point, you might see a terrorist campaign in Egypt by Islamists against the Egyptian government. You could have the Israelis use that to break up uh, Islamists in the occupied territories but in fairness they, that has blown up in the Israelis face before mm-hmm. for a long time it was the PLO and the Muslim Brotherhood that was leading the 
opposition in the, in the occupied territories. Yeah. And so Israeli, the Israeli government was, was funding other groups to to stop them. Mm. One of these groups would later become known as as uh, Hamas. Yes. So that blew up in their faces pretty spectacularly, I dare say. <laughs> Putting it mildly. So this is where it gets harder and harder to actually speculate well. Mm. Because at some point these flare-ups are inevitable so long as Israel insists on occup- keeping the occupied territories in this submissive position vis-a-vis Israel. Because mm. I, I read Seth and Sika's book, uh, Preventing Palestine, which is about the diplomacy between Israel and the Palestinians and how Israel has blocked every attempt at a Palestinian state. And so by like the 60s that way of thinking is dominant in Israel and it's hard to make it go away hard but not impossible perhaps you need just the right people in charge of the Israeli government with a majority in the Knesset Mm. and even the left wing parties believe this that the Arabs need to be kept on a very tight leash Mm. and so you need someone like I don't know Uri of Neri Mm entering politics mm. and I don't think he was ever involved in politics in that way and not only that but, he, but it complicates things because of the uh, way Israeli politics are set up I mean Golda Meir I think once joked that Israel has about 4 million prime ministers um, and uh, it gets all confusing the Israeli government system is set up that any old l- lunatic can, can get into the, into the Knesset and they get a relatively small proportion of votes yes and so you have a lot of minor parties, a lot of hard right-wing Zionist parties, because there are more of that ilk in Israel than there are pro-Arabs. And so that is what propelled Menachem Begin into power in the 70s. Yes. And you have the whole uh, Ashkenazi versus uh, Sephardi and Israhi split in Israel and Begin, despite being Ashkenazi himself, was backed by a lot of Mizrahi and Sephardi voters who wanted that hard line mm-hmm. and wanted Israel to remain a Jewish state. At this point, it's hard. It's really hard because the the hard right has a much better possibility of getting into the Knesset and the prime ministership than any peace faction does. Yeah. And so maybe you can change this a bit by having the uh, Yom Kippur war go differently or like even the Sixth Day War go differently. They don't occupy the Gaza Strip and the West Bank to begin with. Mm. And so you prevent the growing settler voter bloc in Israeli politics who adamantly wants Israel to remain as the occupying authority in, in the territories. Mm. So it's hard. It's really hard. Well, let's go on to the uh, mid-1990s now. I want to touch on uh, Yitzhak Rabin and uh, his assassination and what would have happened had he survived. I mean, this was also one year before Netanyahu came to power. How would it have worked out? On the one hand, you probably do get something more or something the Palestinians say in the long run. Mm. On the other hand, I mean, even in our world you've had accusations that the Palestinian Authority was nothing more than than quizzlings to the Israelis. So 
I don't know. People talk a lot about needing an Israeli Mandela. No, it's, it wouldn't be an Israeli Mandela. It'd be an Israeli FW de Klerk. Yes. You, you need the Palestinian Mandela. Yeah. If you, if you want to make that comparison, I'm not convinced that comparison is perfect, but for this particular aspect, I think it works. Even with Rabin surviving, you have the likes of Yigal Amir and Israel. Yeah. And so they are going to make things differently, and you might see a hard right insurgency against the Israeli government because they were willing to do that before. If they're willing to shoot Yitzhak Rabin, you might see a bombing, far-right bombing campaign against pro-peace Israeli politicians. Mm. Of course, this may be, they may also attack Palestinians, and you might have a, a second intifada in the 90s, because the first was in the 80s. Yes. And so, I mean, I think before we move on, I think we should talk about the, the first intifada a bit. Okay. I, yep. I think that sure. is another one of those things that is inevitable after a certain point. Yeah. Because the first intifada was notable because it was a Palestinian resistance to the Israelis that was that came from the Palestinian territories. Because mm. up until that point, the PLO and the Islamic Jihad and the, the Popular Front of Liberation of Palestine were all based elsewhere in the Arab world. Yeah. So this was a first homegrown massive resistance against the Israelis sure. that built off what was uh, made at Land Day near Carmiel. So you could have the uh, Intifada be more successful. I don't... They wouldn't destroy the state of Israel, no, but they would... They might make it... Di their hold on the Gaza Strip or the West Bank so difficult that they might withdraw or at least have a smaller force... On the other hand, the Palestinians did in the Intifada did not have much of a formal leadership structure, mm. which Rashid Khalidi argues in multiple books I've read of his is one of the big problems with the pro-Palestinian movement to this day is that they don't have good leadership, they don't have good political organization, and they cannot play the international community in the way that Israel knows how to do very well. Mm. So, I mean, if you read... Uh, uh, Khalidi's book uh, The Iron Cage he talks a lot about that and what he thinks is necessary to get the pa Palestinians out from under the Israeli thumb So thinking about this then uh, what sort of point of departure uh, do you think in the past 100 years or so uh, would best lead to a at least relatively stable Israeli-Palestinian relationship today? The partition plan of the UN going as the plan was actually written down, okay. not as the 48 war had it ended up being. Mm. That is not easy to do because no. you had Jewish settlements in the Arab portions and the Arabs wanted to keep them out and the Zionists were not willing to, willing to let them go. Mm. I mean, if you want the best relations between the Zionists and the Arabs, like, like put the Zionists in Argentina or, or Uganda. Mm. I mean, at a certain point, the, the the two sides are so at odds with each other, tensions are inevitable. Mm. And, like, even from the 1880s, that's difficult. Mm. Like, there's that one fringe belief in the, in the early 
Zionist settlement that since they're both Semitic peoples, uh, the, the Zionists should seek to merge with the Arabs. Mm-hmm. But that was always a fringe thing. Yeah. And so there are no easy options. And it's really sad because in some ways each has very understandable motivations mm. that, the, that the Zionists wanted somewhere away from the pogroms, away from European anti-Semitism. And it's perfectly understandable, but they're rolling over the the, the Arabs in the process. Mm. And there is no way to make that go well, because the Arabs aren't going to take it lying down. Yeah. So, like, just just put them in Argentina or Uganda and hope for the best. And even then, that might not go well, because there are people already in those places, too. Or, like, have that one proposal for that, that Jewish homeland in an island in New York... Yeah. Have that succeed. Maybe that goes better. After the first Intifada, I think you have the the uh, dynamics of the whole conflict pretty much laid out pretty yeah. easily. You have mm. a Palestinian toward a Nida voice, and so go more towards terrorism. Then a hard right uh, Zionist position expressed in our world through Likud. Yes. And it's, it's most recent prophets being Sharon and then Netanyahu. Yeah. And it's very hard to, to, to break it out of that. Mm. And that's one of the of the sad things about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Sure. Is that at a certain point, the logic in the heads of everyone is so clear. And it makes sense is not necessarily justified but you can see the thought processes in it and you're going to need someone to break out of that mm. and you had Arafat and Rabin willing to try it on in the 90s but the Israeli right wasn't willing to and my understanding that there were several among the Palestinian radicals who didn't want it either mm. so you're going to need an incentive to have the two willing to beat their sourhards into plowshares a bit. Mm. I do not see an easy way to do that after, like, even 48. To summarise this last hour and a bit, nothing's easy. No. (laughs) I mean, especially not with this region. As is attributed to to Pope John Paul II, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact wording, Mm. there, I, I see two solutions for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There is the realistic one, which involves divine intervention, and the miraculous one, which involves a... <laughs> involves the two coming a to solution. terms. Yes, yes. That is not the exact wording, but it's effectively that. It's pretty close so to the mark. You need someone to put down the guns for a bit, and neither side wants to. For perfectly understandable, if not necessarily justified reasons... Mm. And it's not easy. It's that time in the show now where we review alternate history over the, well, last, uh, well, since we last talked, really. It is our feedback hub part of the show. So, Alex, I I guess I should say happy birthday. Six years since uh, the alternate timelines um, forum started. Oh, yeah, oh, that. Yeah, that was in March. And... Mm. Yeah, I, I've been there for most of it, and it was kind of surprising that I've been there for the majority of its existence. Mm. And so, it's a nice little corner of the internet. Yeah. I recommend you join it. Yeah, very uh, good. 
Very good. Um, I say I was having a bit of a browse there uh, earlier on today, in fact, interestingly enough, uh, before I got on with my work. Has there been anything in particular that sort of struck you from there over the past uh, month or so? I mean, uh, I know that they have been going on with their with the Al Sprague de Camp Awards. Ah, and yes. And so, I... Th- and they were announced uh, about a week ago, and so the winners have been announced, but I have not read them yet, because, as I've mentioned, I have a hard time reading forum time just because of the Mm. of it being on my computer screen I read more old history on my Kindle and on in physical formats yeah so uh we may have to review some of that and uh, get those on before May, I think, and uh, discuss some of the winners uh, on yeah. the next show, uh, So, which will be in early May. So uh, we will do that, I think. Yeah, I should get around doing that. Right, yeah. Excellent. Um, and I've cropped up on the Sea Lion Press website as well, Alex. As you yes. found out, as you discovered, I was interviewed on uh, by the guys at the Sea Lion Press um, about, well, a number of things, really, but uh, also how I accidentally sort of stumbled into alternate history. So I would suggest you read it if you if you fancy doing so. But uh, maybe, you know, Alex, you've you've read it. What would you what would you like to say about the points that I raised? I mean, it, it's just a very interesting look into uh a whole different aspect of the oldness community like mm. of doing it as a podcast and rather as a written thing because yes. most old history in all its forms is a written thing yeah and yeah. so I just think of a look at a different medium definitely and definitely I mean, I mean being on the show is, mm. is a different experience than writing a timeline or a story yeah. and so I think it's just worth looking at for that alone. I mean, yeah. and Ben's a very good writer, and he made a very interesting interview, and I absolutely do recommend you do read it. Well, that's very nice to hear. Say, so it's, it's very. It was interesting doing it as well, uh, because uh, it's one of the reasons why I got in contact um, with you and a few others a few years back and said, um, "Is anyone interested in doing an alternate history podcast?" Is because most alternate history is written, as you say. Um, but then, as Matt, Matt Mitrovich has found out, amongst others, there is scope for a good alternate history podcast, uh, or a couple, uh, talking about, uh, you know, alternate history generally and the consequences of various bits and pieces, as we have been doing uh, quite a lot uh, today, as well as being slightly different sort of uh, take on things. Uh, we can get more people into AH perhaps uh, who might not have been into it to start with if that makes sense yeah absolutely and that's sort of a point I sort of make um, in this article um, that you can find on the Sea Lion Press website if you fancy doing so say give it a read have a look see what you think see what you agree with what you might disagree with and all all that jazz really so that's what I've been up to Um, Alex what else have you been doing over the past few months or so uh, I'll admit to you, I've only read so much Old History because I was doing the immense amount of research needed for this podcast of episode. Course. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, most recently, I think was uh, Peter Tyrius's United States of Japan trilogy, which I thought was interesting. I had some quibbles with it, but I think it was worth reading. Mm. It's a very anime-inspired look at a world where the Japanese win World War Two and rule half the United States. It's 
Like, uh, imagine the man in the high castle, but with more mechs and with more spiky hair. That's sort of what I was thinking just then, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's basically it. That is basically what it's all about. Well, there you go. Brilliant. We'll look into it. So I think you did mention this, actually, on uh, the show uh, a couple of months back, perhaps. I think I vaguely remember it, it might have been you that mentioned it. It might have been me briefly. In terms of what I've been up to, interestingly enough, actually, as we're focusing on Japan, I did uh, read uh, an article on what uh, might have happened had Russia won the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, which would have been interesting in itself, how that would have affected the geopolitical situation before the First World War and in the run-up to it, and uh, what what that would have done, particularly to the, the Emphros, say, of the great game in particular. I have to do a review on that in the uh, next uh, few weeks or next few months or so. Have you got a pick of the week for us? I want to go with the, the, the second of, uh, of Peter Tiaras' books, uh... Mecha Samurai Empire. I think that's the strongest of the trilogy, mm. and so I'm going to go with that. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to go probably with my Russo-Japanese war thing because I was looking that up uh, a couple of weeks back, um, and I was also looking up. I was also looking up the idea of. Um, well, I came across an article on what might have happened had Scotland voted for independence back in 2014. Definitely be talking a little bit more about that. Alex, you got anything? else to say before we head off I will say that sometime within April probably I will have another vignette up on the Sea Lion Press blog that won the January competition so expect another story from me on the uh, on the Sea Lion Press blog at some point. That's just about it from the Alternate History Show for another day and for another month. All that remains for me to say is thank you for downloading and thank you for listening over the past hour and a half. We've done what many people thought was impossible, made some sense of Middle Eastern politics over the past 90 minutes. Yeah, I know, all in 90 minutes as well. My thanks to Alex for ably assisting me doing that. In fact, he did the bulk of it, really if I'm going to be honest. Uh, do join me next month, by the way. Before then, I'd like you to get in contact with me about, uh, well, pretty much anything really to do with the podcast. We're available on all alternate history platforms. We're on alternate timelines, alternate history online on Facebook as well, along with the Line Press forums, and we're on alternatehistory.com if you want to have a word with us there. If you'd like to uh, ping us a message with any ideas as to the future of the show, any pointers that you think we should take on as well please do get in contact do not be shy now as i alluded to a minute ago we're back in early may we'll be talking about rhodesia and zimbabwe with expert on the matter charlton cousins He'll be joining us to talk about the 1922 referendum on joining South Africa and alternate outcomes of UDI. What if there had been no UDI? And what if Zimbabwe have formed differently? We'll be touching on all that and more in early May. Watch this space. Meantime, stay well, stay safe, and most importantly, stay happy.